0: Good morning, and thanks for having me here. It is a huge blessing to fill in for Pastor Dreadlocks, as we call him, over at Humankind. Jason is on one of what I call his walks in the woods. When I say walk in the woods, it's a 500-mile hike over 27 peaks that uh, would kill the average human being. But that's what he finds resting and refreshing. So God bless him. Go, Go for a walk in the woods. One of the hard parts is I, I told him at one point I would love to go for a walk in the woods with you, but uh, I'm honored and often uh, one of the folks that he asks to fill the pulpit when he's gone. So we're gonna have to figure out how I can do that. And yeah, whatever. Anyway, I uh, I was praying about this message, and the Lord put on my heart to speak on the topic of giving, and. Uh, Much of what I share with you is going to be based on a book that was recommended to me to read this past spring called The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. I want to tell you up front before we dive in that Jason did not put me up to this. He didn't say, oh, you know, we got this stingy church of folks that don't like. And he didn't say anything about it. I, I, we we're kind of marching the way through Philippians. And he said, you can continue on with Philippians 1 or preach on whatever the Lord puts on your heart. And this is what he put on my heart. And so what I would like to do is start with a story that brings some background to The whole concept of giving and tithing. But before we do that, why don't we pray? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that everything that we have is actually yours. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us and show us how actually healthy and life-giving it is. To give a little bit back to you, acknowledging that all things come from you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a story. And you are the star of this story. So the story is in the second person singular. You're a prisoner, you're in this nasty, dark, dank, dungeon and you're imprisoned for crimes against the king and you're guilty as charged. And the only food that you get is slid through a little slot in the side of the wall and it it comes through once a day. It's a little tin plate of slop and a little squatty tin cup of water. And that's your rations for the day. You're in solitary confinement. It's dirty. The only colors you see are brown and gray. There's a little bit of light coming through some, uh, a, a, a tiny little window up top uh, during the daytime. But those, those bars are very sturdy and you're not going anywhere. And there you are. And you are miserable. You've wondered on multiple occasions whether or not death is better than this circumstance nobody ever even speaks to you while you're in this situation except one day that little slot in the door rattles open and the plate of food comes through and the little cup comes through and the jailer actually gets his lips down near the slot and he says the king has known you you haven't heard another human voice for so long. You immediately jump over there. King, King is known. What, what does that mean? King is known. Like what? what what's the significance? Stay. Well, stay. Let's talk a while. Let's. Don't go anywhere. You're so screaming for any kind of human interaction at all. But you get the the clear sense that the jailer has closed the thing back up and moved on. The next day, you're crouched at the ready. You want to hear if he will actually talk to you again. So the next day, the thing rattles open, the plate slides through, and the jailer again s- speaks. And this time he says, the king has a plan for you. Okay, all right, don't leave. Let's talk for a minute. What plan? <laughs> Is it a good plan or a bad plan? Am I a goner? Like, can I get out of here? Is there, or will I ever get a trial? Is there a death penalty waiting for me? What what's What plan? And again, you have the sense that he's gone, and your mind is just consumed. You haven't heard anything from a human being for so long, and I, okay, the Lord, uh, uh, the, the King has known me. The, the King has a plan for me. So, what's next? You're crouched by the by this little this little slot. Next time, but the next day comes, and it's not the slot that's rattling. You actually hear the door that hasn't cracked open since you were thrown in here, however long ago. And they're moving the the bolts and the latch and the the beam that holds the thing closed. And now the door is swinging open. And for some reason, counterintuitively, instead of jumping toward the door, you actually step back. And there stands the jailer. And he says, the king has called you. And with an expressionless face that does not reveal whether that's really good news or really bad news... He simply turns his head for you to walk out. And now you're out of the jail cell for the first time. And now you're walking to the end of this corridor and seeing the other jail cells. And now you're going up this spiral staircase. And now the light is coming in greater because there's more windows. And now you're at the top of the stairs. And now you're actually walking out of the prison complex. Oh my gosh, there's actually color in this world. And you can see green of grass and you can see green on the trees. And not just green, there's other beautiful colors. There's reds and oranges and the sky is blue. You actually see people way over this, like a family picnicking on the other side of this long green. And you're, oh my gosh, I'm breathing fresh air. But where am I going? And, and now all of a sudden you realize that there are other soldiers in formation and they're marching you to the palace and now you're going to the palace steps and now you're being marched up to... St- you're in rags and tattered. Your clothes are filthy. You're aware of your own filth. And, but here you are and now you're going up and now you're on this this red carpet and now you're actually at the end of the carpet. At the other end is the throne and another set of stairs and there sits the king. In all your life, you've never seen anybody who looks just so in control and so completely comfortable in his own skin. Again, his face neither reveals whether good news or bad news is coming. The king has known you. The king has a plan for you. The king has called you. And now you're right in front of the throne in this little set of seven or eight stairs and you're looking up and instinctively without even having to be told or shoved on the shoulder you get down on a knee and you look up and finally the expressionless look on the king turns into a big broad smile and he says the king has justified you and you're not even sure what exactly that means, but he makes it clear. He goes on. He says, we're square. We're good. You owe nothing. Debt paid. Good to go. You can't even believe what you're hearing. Just two days ago, you thought you were going to rot in this jail cell for the rest of all eternity, and now all of a sudden, you've been marched in front of the king, and he says, paid in full. Am I? That's that bad ear of mine. What? And so in utter disbelief, but in incredible gratitude, you turn and start to walk back down this thing. Let me get out of here quick before somebody changes their mind, right? And so you're hustling down this thing. And then all of a sudden you hear, wait. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. It was too good to be true. I'm on candid camera. This is some kind of a joke. I, I was waiting for the shoe to drop. Definitely too good to be true. So you turn around, hi, right, give me the real story now, right? And the king says, and by the way, I've adopted you as my own child. You are a co heir to everything that I own. And why don't we get you some nice clothes? And all of a sudden, this wonderful elderly lady has you by the elbow. And she's marching you to another room in the palace. And she she shows you this beautiful... She throws open the door and says... This is your dwelling, and the carpet is absolutely immaculate, and it's gorgeous, and the bed has 27 pillows on it, and there's, she says, there's some clothes over here. Uh, let's get you cleaned up. I've got a bath running in, in the bathroom. I'll, I'll leave you alone, and closes the door as your mind is blown. I went from the lowest low to a co-heir, the entire kingdom in one tiny little series of events. You take a bath that lasts forever and you let it all run out and you fill the bathtub again because the water was so dirty that you want to now take a clean bath. That is the story, such as it is, that Paul tells us In the book of Romans, in chapter 8, you don't have to turn to it, where he basically walks us from the lowest low to the highest height in two simple scripture verses. He shows us how very, very distant and far apart we were from God and what heights we have ascended to. Lower than a pregnant ant, higher than the highest star in the sky in five little verbs What he says is that those whom God foreknew, you and I, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, at least four of those five verbs are verbs that we don't use regularly. You know, we we don't. We don't meet somebody over coffee and talk about, I justified you, or I predestined you, or I, you know, you know. These are verbs that we don't use on a regular basis. And so our I, at least mine, tends to gloss over that and say, you know what, I don't get it. And so the story is my humble attempt to put it into a context of Paul saying, You were here, and now you're here. Understand where you are. It's not enough that He just foreknew you. Foreknew you, that's great. God has knowledge of all things, but that doesn't mean good or bad. He predestined you, so He's got a plan for you. So He's actually kind of making your way for you ahead of time. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. So He says, I've called you. And now He's actually engaging you, saying, Get these thigh muscles engaged. Get up because you're going to be walking out this plan that I have for you. I haven't just known it. I haven't just planned it. I'm calling you. You and me. We're going together. We're going to do something together. Me working through you. Before that happens, he has to let us know that he's justified us. That you're justified justified is not a word that we use. So if there was an invisible cylinder coming up from you and going up to the roof here right now, and it included all those dark gray dingy thoughts of every bad thing you or I have ever done or thought or said, our sins, the bad stuff, he took them and he grabbed them out of there and he grabbed them out of there and he grabbed them out of there and he found himself a big old trash bag and he he got rid of it all and he threw it as the scripture says as far as the east is from the west. None of that stuff remains as far as he is concerned. It's an incredible feeling when we wrap our mind around the fact that the king of the universe has said, We're good. We're square, not because of what you did, because of what I did, but we're good. And now he goes one more remarkable step. Those who he has justified, he has also glorified. What in the heck could that possibly mean? Glory is a noun that almost always ever gets attributed to God and God alone. And so it almost feels heretical for us to consider for a moment that we could be endowed, that we could be imbued with this kind of glorification. That sounds like something that only should be for God. And yet, we read stories in the scriptures about Moses coming down from the mountain and the glory of God shining. His face literally glowed in the dark, he was glowing. And now we know that we are on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And so glory is part of our world too. He tells you you're co-heirs. It's like Christ is your brother. You're co-heirs to everything. How could you possibly lack anything if your father, if your dad, is the king? That's the backdrop for giving. And so I read this amazing book called The Blessed Life. And when I speak on giving or when I speak on tithing, I have to come to you right from the jump by letting you know that this is something I have done woefully imperfectly my entire adult life. So this is not TJ giving anybody in this room or watching the video a guilt trip, period. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed to tell you that this is a lesson that I have only just recently learned because I looked at hardship and financial difficulty in my own world, much of it by my own doing, and said, I don't quite have enough to tie that 10% to God I'm seminary educated and I didn't get this right. So don't feel bad about where you are. But the other thing I want to stress right from jump is it's not about torque. It's not about guilt. It's about we don't get all of the blessings that are waiting for us until and unless we get this right. There's a clog in our mentality. It's gummed up. It's stoppered up if we don't recognize that 100% of what you have and what I have, 100%, including this next breath that I'm going to take, including this next heartbeat that my heart is going to make, 100% of everything is because God said amen to it. It's all His This body is His, such as it is, dad bod, you know, all that. It's it's His. Everything I have is His. And so what He's saying is, prove to me that you get it by just giving back 10%. And that's what tithe means. I looked at tithe as whatever the amount was that I was giving. And if that's 1% or 2% or 8.5%, I called it a tithe, but it's not. Because the definition of tithe is ten percent, at least ten percent. That's what he's calling us to give. But he says extraordinary things are going to happen once that happens. I want to uh, I want to show you guys something that's that's really cool. Uh, this this is amazing. I was talking to a friend that I was going to give this illustration. And he said I actually have one. I said you're kidding me. This is a, an actual $20 bill from the Confederate States of America. And it's super cool to look at. I, I just, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Imagine for a moment that you were a Confederate soldier in 1864. Uh, or, or is there anybody living in the South? Anybody living in the Confederacy? And you're there, and you don't agree with the, the the cause that that your side is fighting for. It's it's abhorrent to you, and you you wish that this this weren't going on. But the fact of the matter is, you live where you live, and all of the money that you own is this stack of Confederate cash. You see how things are going. You see that the South is going to lose the war, and you know that this and everyone like it, which is all of your earthly wealth, is going to be completely worthless very soon. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that all of your worldly wealth was going to be worthless in a very short time? Not a rhetorical question, I'm asking. What would you do if you knew you had this whole big stash of confederate money, in your mattress, you don't know whether it's going to be a year or 18 months or two years or maybe even five years, but at some point, your side's going to lose and this stuff is going to be worthless. What would you do? (laughs) Jackson would do this. I'm not quite sure what that means. I think he's calling time out. What would you do? If that was your money, what would you do? Use it? Use it or lose it. So maybe, maybe the best solution, if it's use it or lose it, is I will keep just enough so that I can eat and my family can live and I can function because that's the currency of the day, but... I will do whatever I can to convert the rest of this into something that's useful when this war is over. You see where I'm going? We have a stash of Confederate 20s. Our own stash, which we can't take it with us. I mean, maybe we'd like to think that we're the Egyptian pharaohs and, you know, bury it in the sarcophagus with me and I'll take it with me into the afterlife. But we know that that's not the case and that's not possible. So maybe, just maybe, what we should do is keep just enough so that we can live and we can function and our families are okay and convert the rest into something that's useful for the kingdom because this war is going to be over fairly soon. Sooner than maybe we would care to admit. Nod your heads if you understand the illustration that I'm making with this. I want to, uh, I want to read from you Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. And it says this, God talking to us. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me on this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room, that you will not have room enough for it. Test me on this. It's language that he uses very rarely. You don't believe me? Try me on this one. Try me on this one. God's saying, I dare you. Try me on this one. Stop hoarding 100% or 98% or 96.3%. Give 10% or more. Part with it. Let it go out of your hands. Not grudgingly, but gladly enthusiastically i can't wait to see what you're going to do with this give him that 10 percent and see if the 90 that remains will be way better than the 100 had you hoarded and that's what he's telling us to do again i bring myself before you today as a bad example but i can give you plenty ...of good examples where I've trusted and God has done great things. So if anything I say today sounds like bragging, I'm bragging on God and not on me. I've gotten this one wrong so much in my own life. Let's talk about the poker chip. Jackson, you didn't know I was going to tell this story. My son Jackson is here with his girlfriend Jelly. And uh, we we started this ministry uh, years ago... At the Lord's prompting uh, called Humankind, it's a bottle of water and now it's uh, tea and lemonade as well. It's called Humankind. The Lord put it very clearly on my heart to leave what I was doing and start doing this thing in an effort to get people clean drinking water. And I had a wrestling match with God. God, you got the wrong guy. I've never taken a business class in my life. I've never taken a marketing class in advertising. I have no clue where to start. And I did what you would do if God had called you to like go online and you figure out how to do a barcode and a choir code and how how to get all this stuff in place and how to start a business and how to start a a 501c3, a, a foundation where people can make donations and blah, 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 blah. And it was difficult. I would have thought... That because God told me to do it, he would also make it easy. Why are you all laughing? Like, TJ, you're so stupid. You're so naive. Well, I, that's, I, I really thought that, that he would make it easy. He didn't make it easy, but he did make it possible. And in, in a lot of circumstances where you would have thought that it was impossible, I was introduced to a millionaire. And not just a millionaire, but a millionaire many times over. And we were in a place, you didn't know this because you were just a kid, but we were in financial dire straits. It was tight. You did know? Shoot, I thought I kept it from you. Anyway, um, we, uh, we were in a really, really tight spot. And I'm driving down the road and I get a call and it's him. It's this guy. And he calls me. and He's got this uh, New York, Brooklyn accent. And he goes, "Uh, hey, what are you doing? I'm I'm driving down the road, Chris, I guess. uh, I'm coming into town, and I'm I'm going down to Atlantic City. Why don't you get you and the boys and come with me? And so I got him. You know, if a millionaire says, let's go to Atlantic City. (laughs) Now, I don't gamble, but you don't have to gamble to love the experience. This guy's not a believer at all, and he's quite outspoken about that fact. But he wanted to show us a good time. And he did, right? We had fun, right? So we go down there and he says, well, you don't even got to go down to Atlantic City. Just get yourself to Philly Airport and I'll have my limo pick you up. So when somebody says airport limo, because I've had this experience five or six times, I picture a big, ugly 15 passenger van that they call the airport limo. Have you had this experience? That's not a limo. That's a big, ugly 15-passenger van, and I'm sitting in there like a school kid or something. That's not a limo. When this guy calls and says his limo, <laughs> it's his limo, brother. We're sitting these this wraparound couch in the back of this cool car that looked like it was... I don't know, 1972, stretch from here to there, and Jackson's over there, he's like popping open a, a teeny little can of Sprite at the little mini bar, he's like, yeah, this is awesome, and the guy, the, the millionaire, our friend, was uh, working on on a project that he had to get ready for a presentation that was going to happen somewhere in the area in the coming days. So he's like, "Yeah, oh, you guys just entertain yourselves. We had plenty to entertain us. There was like every kind of radio and satellite and TV and little Elijah, your younger brother, was just eating everything. It was awesome. And then we get there and you don't eat at Burger King when a millionaire is showing you around. He took us to this five-star restaurant and, and we are like, uh, I, I don't even remember the names of this. It's like five or six. It's a place called the Borgata, and there's five or six different five star restaurants there. And we ate this ridiculously sumptuous meal, and we're so full. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, let's get some dessert. No, no, we're too full. No, no, we're going to get You can't come here and then not get dessert. They bring this piece of cheesecake the size of a cat. I mean, it was huge. And, We're just pigging out. and Oh, it's great. So now, it comes to the end of the night when he is going to... He just lives a different lifestyle, right? He's going to go out gambling. By the way, we didn't have a hotel room. I mean, this thing, it was like the penthouse of the Borgata. It was like... I don't know. Did we have the entire top floor of the hotel? It was massive. There was... A common room in the top, the living room area, that was, it must have been almost as big as this space right here. And then our rooms were on that end, and his rooms were on that end, and so we hung out for a while, and he is one of these types that goes out, and he's drinking and gambling till all hours of the night, and we we had a ball hanging out with him, but now I'm going to bed, and I'm putting my two boys to bed, and so... Uh, off we go to, to sleepy and I get up the next morning my hair is like this and I'm wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and I get up and I don't know what time it is maybe seven o'clock in the morning and uh, he goes uh, he, he was just getting in and he goes uh, I like what you're doing here take this and he flicks me this poker chip in the air and I catch it and I look down And it says $5,000. I actually looked online to see if I could find a Borgata poker chip. I couldn't find the Borgata 5,000 poker chip, but I did find one from Monte Carlo. And it looks very similar, actually. It was white on the outside, and it had this kind of shiny thing going on where, like, if you... I don't know, some kind of holographic, like, the colors change when you... Whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is a joke. I'm sure that he went to, like, the... You know, like the souvenir shop. And this is just a little remembrance. It's not an actual $5,000 poker. Do this even exist? Uh, And he goes, yeah, you can go downstairs and play if you want. You can cash it in, whatever you want to do. But I like what you're doing. So I wake up little Jackson. And you were still asleep. And I held this thing in front of you. Do you remember seeing it for the first time? You don't remember that? So your eyes Bugged out of your head and you thought the same thing that I thought, which is a joke. I think no, he gave this to me, man. He he wants to help the ministry. I, I think it's real. He said we could go down and, and and gamble with it or cash it. So Jackson said, Let's go gamble. No, I'm just kidding. He's he uh, he said, Let's 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 go down and so we get dressed and we go down there and it's like, you know, the the uh, the the, the lady at the at the teller's like, you got the feeling she didn't see these all the time. She's like, uh, just hold on one second. She goes and she brings back the manager. And the manager comes back and goes, uh, just hold on one second. They go back and they get the bigger manager. And the bigger manager comes back and goes, could I see some ID, please, sir? I show them my driver's license. The next thing, they're peeling off $100 bills. And we got $5,000, much needed money to help the ministry from the most unlikely source. God can provide. God will provide. God takes our little acts of obedience and lavishes. He could have done that any way that he wanted. God could have just had the money miraculously appear in my bank account if he wanted to. He's God. But in a way that our extravagant father does, he took us on this really crazy, fun memory that we'll never forget in this limo to this five-star restaurant, to this penthouse experience, this $5,000 poker chip. It was so cool. Our father's so good. Our Father so good. He takes such good care of us. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. God gives generously i will never again hoard more than that 10 percent back to god not because i'm worried about getting my knuckles wrapped by some ruler of an angry god in heaven but because i don't want to miss the blessing of believing what he says which is if I unclench this sometimes stingy fist of mine, he will unclench his, and I'm going to watch these blessings pour out. The 90% when God is giving it is going to be way better than the 100% when I was tight-fisted. There's a flow that happens in God's economy. I was just needing to uh, sell our house in Philadelphia. I now live in, in Lancaster County. And it was quite a haul to get the house ready for selling. And anything that was going wrong in the last weeks and months before I sold, it was another headache and another thing that I needed to get right. And the sink was clogged. And you cannot sell a house with a clogged sink because it's just nasty. It's such a simple concept, right? This thing is clogged. I can't even let the good water flow from the spigot as it's supposed to, to do all of the wonderful things good water can do, hydrating my body, washing my hands, washing me, whatever it is, all of that good stuff can't happen if this part isn't, is not clogged and, and isn't letting this other stuff flow out. Jason did not tell me to preach this sermon, and he said actually giving is pretty good. But I think if my guess is right, it could be even better if everybody brought that full 10% into the storehouse and we watched the magic that God is going to do. I believe that with all of my heart. If if there's part of you that says, no, the fear is winning out and I got to hold it, unclog that, unclench those the, you're holding on to something so tight until your, your knuckles just turn white. Let it go. Let it go with gladness, with true generosity, with a heart of expectation. Let it go. Let it go to God. Trust that amazing things are going to happen and wait for the blessing that returns to you. So there was a time when i needed to start the foundation which has come to be named the kind human foundation where where the um, the the means by which the the water would literally flow to get people clean drinking water and there was a moment when i had to finish with the online red tape to finish what is called uh, a foundation is in in uh In kind of tax terms, it's called a 501c3, right? And so I have to click this button and it's going to cost $850, right thereabouts, of my own money. And I knew that the Lord was calling me to do it. But there was even something in my head that said, all right, God, here we go. Because I could take this $850 and just give it to a project, And it could pay for a small part of one well and I would know guaranteed that that was going to get done. So for me to click this mouse right now and say, yeah, take this money out of my bank account means I believe that you're going to do even more, that you're calling me to do this and that the foundation is going to bring many, many, many times more than that 850 that I would give to do one well. And with a little prayer and with a peace that kind of washed over me, I clicked that button. That was almost 10 years ago now. And to date, I'm bragging on God, to date, over 150,000 people have gotten clean drinking water in Haiti, India, Africa, parts of Latin America, Flint, Michigan, all over the world because God blesses it and our tiny little acts of obedience. I feel like church bells are ringing. I don't know. The timing is perfect, thank you. One last story. And and we know it all very well. It's Jesus reclined at the very low table that they sat in at that day and time, they're kind of uh, reclining on the floor, maybe a a pillow or a, a rug or a blanket or something beneath you, and sharing uh, you know, breaking bread with with some of his friends and this woman comes in with an alabaster jar and she breaks it open and she pours it over Jesus, clearly a a foretelling of, of what is about to come. But, but just this beautiful act of generosity. The, the, the stuff inside is very, very expensive perfume. And one of Jesus' disciples gets indignant about the situation, saying, oh man, we could have sold that stuff and we could have given it to the poor. We all know that Judas, the one who was saying that, didn't give a rip about the poor he just wanted he was pilfering he was some of it he had sticky fingers right he was keeping some of it for himself not a good character and so he said oh yeah yeah I, i'd i'd like to to keep that money and give it to the poor but jesus called a spade a spade and said, no, 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 what this woman is doing is absolutely beautiful. He wasn't the least bit worried about money being lost that could go to the poor. He knew her heart. He knew what was in her motivation. Robert Morris in his book says, generosity doesn't give in order to receive, but it always gets rewarded by God. No, our motivation Shouldn't be simply that we will receive his blessings. Our motivation should be to see God's work in the world. Let's get it unclogged. Let's give. Let's trust. I totally, totally believe with all my heart, God, that the 90% that you leave me with is going to wind up being so much more than the 100% if I had hoarded that tithe. That woman is remembered in the sacred scriptures for all times. She didn't plan on that happening. She didn't expect to be made famous and her story recounted for 2,000 years. But that's exactly what has happened. Generosity doesn't give to receive. But it always gets rewarded by God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to pray that if anybody in this room is where I have been for so much of my adult life, clogged, that they would get unclogged, Lord. That we would take you at your word. That we would trust you. However scary it is, however risky that feels, that we would unclench our fist and give you that full tithe and bring it into the storehouse and watch what is going to happen. Watch the magic that you're going to do as a result, Lord. God... Help us to step back and see this in a broader context. That every single thing that we have, every dollar, every penny, every material thing, and our own very lives, our own very bodies, everything that we have is yours. You have given it to us on loan. You have given it to us to be good stewards. Help us to be those good stewards and with grateful hearts for all that you've given